Hello and welcome to episode 19. Uh, in this episode, we're joined by Andy Ramage, uh, the founder of One Year No Beer and also the co-author of 28-Day Alcohol-Free Challenge. Have a listen to this one. This one is going to challenge how you view, use, and I guess see alcohol. Um, but also it's much deeper than that. We cover everything from NLP uh, through to reframing, through to self-improvement. Um, listen up, I think you'll enjoy this. This is The Dog Days with Ollie Scott, Junior Eldstar, and Ian McKenzie. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of The Dog Days. Uh, today we are joined by the legend that is Andy Ramage. Um, not just the legend, but also the founder of One Year No Beer uh, and co-author to the 28 Days Alcohol-Free Challenge, which I can say I am a reader of, although I was 26 days, um, I believe. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> so 28, yeah, I, How did I, I, I wasn't going to tell you, but I've told you this now. We've kicked it off early. So what yeah. happened on day 20, what was it, 26 or 27? By the way, you're the first person to ask me the first question on the podcast. This is amazing. Right, okay. So, no, but great. This is, do you this know what happened, how... right? So, I I started, and I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to definitely do this. And I I saw this thing on day 26 coming. A, I started to try and read it quicker. The day <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you get ahead. It's one day. Every, yeah. you know, so, and it's amazing because you get different tips and tricks as to what you can do with that day. But I was like, oh, my God, there's this event, and it's definitely going to be boozy. It's, yeah. um, I think it was a birthday, and then the next day was a birthday as well. I just saw it coming, and I wasn't strong enough as a person, so I thought... There's a picture. One of our friends took a picture of the book... And Ollie hung over lying in bed. <laughs> that's, that's not a good advert. It's not a good advert. We didn't put it on social media. Andy. Good, I'm pleased by that. But you'll be amazed. I mean, it, like culturally, these things are so so weird that even that book, the 28 Day Alcohol Free Challenge, you're talking about a photo. When I launched that book, yeah. I got the first ever copy. It was like one of the proudest moments of my life. I'm, mm. You know, I'm an avid reader, and here I had my own copy of my book. I invite my friends, families, everyone to my house to celebrate the 28-day alcohol-free challenge book. Bearing in mind, I hadn't had a drink for four years as the head of this movement called oneyknowbeer.com. My mum and dad turn up. Doorbell goes, champagne! (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what is... Brothers, wine, whiskey, booze, right? And then literally within five minutes of everyone arriving, I'd got all my lovely books fanned out on the the kitchen table and they were engulfed with booze. This photo, I didn't share it on social media. But again, similar thing. There's my lovely book, the 28-day alcohol challenge, surrounded by booze. Wow. Wow. That is just... That's England. We're hardwired into it. Like, if ever there was a moment, I I, I take the mic out of them all the time, I'm like, that was your moment. That was the moment to To do something culturally yeah, different yeah. and turn up with chocolates or something, right? Not That's, bloody... Did they understand the irony? Were you joking about it when oh, you were there? Of course, right? Yeah, but yeah. they didn't, you know, genuinely, they didn't put two and two together. <laughs> this, my family loved me and support me and think, you know, what we're doing is fab, but they hadn't put the two and two together. Yeah. This is a social event, therefore... The knee-jerk reaction at any social event is to bring alcohol. Of course. That's what you do. I love that. And he's written a book. What's it called? I don't know if he's written a book. Let's just go over and celebrate something. Let's just bring some booze to celebrate it. Just to clarify, there's only three people here today, isn't there? Yes. Sorry. So uh, we are are one down, one pooch down. Um, Pooch is going through some of his own dog days at the moment and will be back, I believe, in two weeks. But actually, if I think about it, and, you know, there's a reason why I reached out to you, Andy, because... I think, A, I've heard lots of podcasts that you've been on. I actually listened to some of them when I was reading the book. I was sort of double-ending. Oh, there's a new Oh, dear. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to just throw as much as I could do it myself um, to get through this 26, 28-day um, alcohol-free challenge. But on, on a lot of the podcasts, there, you know, there was um, 
quite a leaning towards how amazing it's been for your life. And I, and I, I felt like there wasn't speaking to people like me at the time who I think had so many social pressures as a 27-year-old male in London. In London as well, it's worth repeating that because it is fucking boozy, especially yeah. in the middle of July. In the summer, yeah. In the summer. There are so many external pressures. And I think um, when I was reading the book, I, I really wanted to ask you some of these questions and just say like, you know, I, I know you're obviously um, into your 30s now, that kind of thing, but how and, and what can I do to kind of get through those different challenges that are thrown up? But we'll come on to that in a second because I guess... I want to go a bit more into where this began for you. Yep. This is the dog days, so please be as vulnerable and honest as you can be yep. about the first. Because you weren't... And actually, you and I dug a bit further back before you were a broker. You were actually a football player before, weren't you? With yes. a wonderful haircut. With, with the worst <laughs> haircut you've ever seen. You know, my, my nickname, awfully, and it's not a nice nickname, was Rocky. But if you've ever seen a film, uh, Rocky Dennis, with Cher, okay. called Mask... Oh it. no! It's, re- it's a very unfortunate yeah, nickname, yeah. but I used right. to hide behind the Rocky Balboa thing. But actually, yeah, yeah. It's like this long ginger hair, as you can imagine, <laughs> like what was I doing? I it look back amazing. and go, it was absolutely shocking. I think as part of the rite of passage of being a footballer is just getting a shite haircut. There must be <laughs> uh, people collecting panini stickers <laughs> of you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Did anyone the ever legend. go to a have the Andy Ramage, please? <laughs> no, I don't think they did. To be fair, I think it was the the very opposite. But no, that was my life. I left school at sixteen. I had that big choice to become a professional athlete or stay on and rugby. I played loads of rugby oh, through nice. school. Um, and then I arrived as a professional and realised I actually wasn't very good. You know, I was sort of tipped for the top, I always joke about it, by my mum. But apart from that, you know, I, I, I realised pretty quickly that I was way behind. And this is actually where the story starts, really, because in that moment, I was like, I've got to do something different. I've been playing rugby for the last five years. Technically, I was way off the pace. Um, but that forced me to think a little bit differently. So I started to read a lot of self-development book, which was probably unheard of for a 16-year-old footballer, got into all the biographies. And actually, I started to look behind the scenes and figure out that most of these brilliant players were training harder than everyone else. They were training differently to everyone else. They weren't just turning up as these natural gifted talents. They were doing the work. And that really started to change my mindset. So against all the odds, I started to train differently, eat differently, think differently, and sort of forced my way to that point at 18 where I got told I wasn't good enough. Mm. Again, which was another hammer blow because I'd signed when I was 10. Right. You know, and then, you know, all this sort of, I guess, frustration and disappointment and failure has been the making of me in many ways because then I said, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I got into a professional club, Gillingham, scored in the professional league. That was my dream. One goal from about five yards. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it bounced but off I my shoulder. It. Yeah. it did. It was like deceptive bobble where I'd miss hit it, just sort of. <laughs> crept in past the keeper, but I did it, right? My dream was to play in the Football League and score a goal, and I did it. And then when I was 21, I was injured. And it was over. Yeah, more disappointment, more failure, more frustration, but you're getting stronger all the time mentally, you know? Um, And then just to whiz through the story, I then ended up in Ireland, funnily enough, playing with a guy called Laurie Sanchez, who's a big Wimbledon He won't know. Player. Right, yeah. yeah he's a football guy. On <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he scored the winner in the FA Cup final for Wimbledon mm. as we were in Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very yeah, apt at the moment. Uh, went over there, but my career was finished basically because I was injured. Travelled around a bit, went to Australia, came back at 25 and fell into oil broking. Interesting. The sort of, you know, the bright jacket screaming and shouting in the pit. When I say I fell into it, my brother happened to be the biggest trader in the market. So he got me a job. Mm. That's how it works. Yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and that was all about High stress, high adrenaline, high pace, a lot of cash, being super social, entertaining. I had the magic card. I could go out every night to any restaurant, any bar, and everything was for free. This was like, great, you know. And at that time, I was 25. 
sort of similar sort of age mm-hmm. to yourself. And the next five, the next 10 years were just a bit of a whirlwind of being that person, that big, you know, larger than life social character, entertaining clients, which always meant alcohol. Mm. Um, and again, I didn't have to pay for anything. And this was London and it was encouraged. You know, it's one of the few jobs in the world where I could go out on a Monday lunch and drink two bottles of wine and come straight back to work mm. and then work for the rest of the afternoon and no one would bat an eyelid. You know, it's that sort of industry. And that's not exceptional in London. It is changing. Mm. But it's not exceptional. And no. since I've come out of it, I've realized that there are many other industries and, and, and whatnot where people behave in the same way, right? And it was just normal to me. It wasn't exceptional. Did I drink more than everyone else? No. You know, I think I was in that mold an average drinker. Mm. But it was still massively excessive when you when you look back on it. I mean, whether that was a bottle of wine at lunch or two bottles of wine at lunch followed by four or five pints, you know, that sort of level of drinking. Yeah. Um, but to fulfill that story around alcohol, there was never that sort of problematic moment. There was no rock bottom in my story, which is important as well. Interesting. Um, that it never reached that place, if you know what I mean. But at the same time, um, it was important for me to figure out that it was holding me back. And that's when everything started to change. Just to, This is really interesting, right? Because I think I, I don't know anybody that doesn't question how much they drink alcohol, um, particularly in their late 20s, early 30s. There is so much reassurance around you. You don't have to look far for someone to go to you. Mate, you're, you're 27. You're th- it's fine. And I, I'm not, I, I can put away quite a few beers on an evening. I have between 13 and 18 beers, right, pints, which is a lot to be putting through your body. Um, I won't drink from Monday to Thursday or Friday. And then on Friday or Thursday, depending on where we're up to in the week, I will then go hell for leather. And it will be like a serious binge. And people around you will just be going, this is completely normal. This oh, is, completely. and I think in the UK, we had, um, I just met talking about somebody before uh, we started this, Nicole on. We went for two beers after a um, restaurant and she was like, you guys drink too much. I was like, we're having two beers at lunchtime. This is not too much. But yeah. culturally, and people who are around us are so au fait with it that it's completely normal. So what moment did you then have, because I'm guessing it had to come from you personally. Yeah. At what moment did you go, and which were, what were the telltale signs to kind of go, yeah, this is too much? Yeah, I think it's an age thing as well. And that's why it's very difficult. I think the younger you are, the harder it is in some ways. Mm-hmm. That being said, millennials are drinking less than ever, which is interesting. All the stats are playing out. But I think you're still in that that zone almost at 27, sort of early 30s. I think it's really difficult. For me, it was mid-30s. I'd had a couple of kids. Um, and that just that sense that I wasn't performing at my best anymore. You know, I was constantly tired, stressed. There was no time. You know, even though I was being super successful in terms of my career and the job that I was doing, it built a big business, I was just struggling a bit. I just wasn't, again, it wasn't problematic. There's no rock bottom, any of that sort of stuff. It was just like, pfft, I felt a bit average. You know, it was filled. Yeah, it was that moment of, hold on, I've reached this place of conventional wisdom says where happiness should reside because I'm successful and I've got a nice house and lovely kids and a lovely wife and all that sort of stuff. And I was like but I'm a five out of 10. This doesn't make Mm. any sense. I've just worked for the last 10 years, blood, sweat, and tears to get to this place. And now I feel a bit, meh, why is that? So rather than leave that job and that career, I was tempted to run off to the monastery and do all that sort of stuff and find myself. Mm. I was like, you know, I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to stay in this industry, but do differently, do things differently. So I resigned from the biggest job in the biggest firm at the time 
just to get some space and see what I wanted to do. And I had nine months gardening leave, which is paid leave, basically, Jeez. which is a, a massive result. And in that time, I thought, what is it I want to do with my life? And then I realized, you know what? I want to go back to Broken, but I want to do it on my terms. I want to do it with my health, my fitness, my relationships at home. That was the most important thing. And I'm going to get myself in mega shape is what I'm going to go back and do. Because bearing in mind, at that time, I was freestone overweight. Body fat was at 35%. I just discovered I had early signs of heart disease, which is not good for somebody in their mid-30s. Um, my resting heart rate had gone up to 68. You know, I was stressed out to the max. I was probably a walking heart attack is the yeah, truth. Yeah. But I was successful and doing what everyone else was doing. Yeah. I wasn't exceptional. And you said culturally, you look around and go, everyone else is doing this, right? Everyone else is drinking like me. Everyone else is trying to be successful like me and working in this like type of pace. Yet when you look beneath, you start to realize, but their bodies are broken. Their minds are broken. Their homes are broken. I was like, I don't aspire to that. I don't care. Were you questioning your career choice or were you just questioning everything at that time? Do you remember? Everything, but I love that career. And this is a brilliant, like, I love Broken. I think it's a brilliant industry full of great, you know, young men and women. Um, so I didn't want to run away from that career, but I was. I was frustrated. I was like pissed off. Why did I have to choose a career that is all about alcohol? So it was, you, that's how you associated it back then. That was yeah. the main frustration. Yeah, absolutely. So in my mind, a limiting belief that I had was that to be successful in that career, you had to drink alcohol. And for me, that was becoming an issue because I was like, well, I don't want to drink alcohol because I know it's holding me back and making me feel awful and all this other stuff. So how do I untie that knot, as it were? And that took a lot of courage in talking about, you know, you know, trying to get over those social clues and whatnot. When I first stopped drinking in that environment, it was so difficult, right? Because one minute, I'm the entertainer, the larger-than-life broker swinging off the chandeliers. A week later, I meet the same client and I don't want to drink. Mm. So I'm going to be a completely different persona, right? Because that persona wasn't me. It was this extroverted character that came out after a few drinks. And to try and switch that off was so difficult because the client's like, hold on a minute. You were entertaining me last week. Why don't you want to entertain me this week? What, like, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with me? And mm. then like, your job's under threat because it's like, this client's not going to want to talk to me anymore. That's He's not going to so want to do business with me. as well, isn't it? It's like, hold on, we were having a beer last week and now you don't want to have a beer with me now. Does that mean that you don't like me as much yeah. as before? Because I think that's the other thing, just flipping it quickly to socially. When you say to someone, oh, I'm not drinking tonight, they go, oh, for fuck's sake. It's the first reaction. And, and they don't, there's never like, oh, good on you, man. That's really good. Oh, well, yeah, I'm going to have a tonic water as well. You just get this, come on, please. Because it's about them. It's not about you. Yeah. It's about their fear. And I guess they're vulnerable, their um, insecurity around not drinking. I'm saying there. I'm that guy, by the way. Oh, yeah, I, <laughs> and so was I. I mean, yeah. that's, and that's the thing. And you're so, it's, it's so true because they see it like a slight on them. It's like, hold on a minute, why don't you want to drink with me? Mm. Um, and I think what, for me, because I was that larger-than-life character, when someone wanted to meet me, they deliberately wanted to meet me because they thought they were going to have a good time and mm. it's going to be a yeah. lot of drinking involved. So it's like, right, they're up for it. And I'm like, no, I don't want to drink. It's like, oh, then it's a double whammy because it's yeah. like, now you've really let them down. And that was, that was really difficult to overcome. But... I managed to do it. How did you get through those social situations at the beginning? So I tripped up and stumbled and fumbled and everything. I was literally like the plant waterer, you know, trying to drink without anyone knowing that I was drinking. I was talking about it earlier, putting two Bec's Blue into a pint glass, Bec's Blue, yeah. non-alcoholic beers, my special beers. I'd only go to certain bars in the end that they knew me so I could do it stealth, basically, because I didn't have the courage. I just genuinely didn't have the courage early on to say to important people that in my mind were so intertwined with my business that... If I let them down, they wouldn't do business with me. So I just did it stealth. Were you able to be that same person? Yeah, I could put on a persona. But what I started to realize quite quickly that because that wasn't me, it was really draining. 
Mm. Like pretending to be someone you're yeah. not. And the greatest discovery you'll ever make, by the way, is your authentic self. It just mm. is. Because then you don't have to pretend anymore. It's just so much easier mm. when you don't have to be that guy. But, you know, and, and again, for you guys in your 20s, like that, I was that character from 21 to 35, right? So 15 years as that persona. So trying to unravel yourself from that, you forget who you really are. Am I that character or am I the guy that actually wants to read books and study and learn and do things differently? Or I am the guy up front. And I would have said 100% I was an extrovert until I stopped drinking about two years later when actually I'm introverted in so many ways. You might not think that, but I genuinely am because introversion is not all about, you know, being confident and talking. It's, you know, energy, the way energy flows. And for me, being in groups of large people just zaps it out of me. Mm. So it's a massive voyage of discovery in amongst slipping up, stumbling, getting it wrong. Like Just like you, I'd have those big social occasions, rubber arm would be twisted, I'd slip up and then I'd regret it. But it slowly built momentum that rather than give up, I thought, you know what, I'm going to learn more about the psychology. So I went back to university part-time to finish a degree. I just finished a master's degree in positive psychology and coaching psychology get in there I just graduated yeah. the other day hey. oh, well oh sorry that was, oh, sorry. I just the other day uh, yeah. no, nice man well done uh, uh, 44 yeah because I, I was just interested in in you know understanding more about my psychology and trying to unravel this process that clearly mm. was tripping everyone up I knew they weren't all dependent forget about that addiction thing it was like this is just a habitual process that's so pressurised culturally mm. it's really difficult to take a break but I know if you can get a break long enough, that's when you get that head of steam up and it starts to get a bit easier. It's quite mm. hard to take a break without it being problematic reasoning. So like if you go, I'm taking a break from alcohol, oh God, what happened? Have you had like a bit of a... <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I just, I, I think it's bad for my health. What? So it's bad for my health as well. You know, this, the, immediately the conversation is, you are better than me and I'm not good enough. Rather than, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Let's celebrate that together. Yeah. I, that was my biggest problem. It was yeah. actually saying, why? Why are you giving up alcohol for 28 days? And my mind was, I actually made it a problem. I was like, well, I think I've got a bit of a problem, so I need to see if I can do it. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> naturally, you would assume when someone has gone cold turkey on something, you mentioned earlier, there was no like rock bottom moments. So I think naturally people assume, oh, he must have, you know, just been going out all the yeah. time and just like going home and doing something. Yeah. Like, I don't know, punching a wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like, that. yeah, it's, it's, I think that's what we assume, like naturally, don't you, in your 20s. If someone, if you, if you were to meet a 20, someone in their 20s that said, well, yeah, I don't drink at all, you think, well, like, yeah, what's, what's what happened? Yeah. Oh, this guy let's let's no, move on. You can't on. get them drunk to get the stigma. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think this is, is the purpose of the movement as well. Because you've got how many now? 25,000 members for one year, no beer. Yeah, well, almost 100,000. 100, sorry, yeah, yeah. for 75,000. I was right there when I took this down. <laughs> so, wow, 100,000 members and in more than one country, so like 72 countries. All over the world, yeah. Of interest. I'm guessing the UK is one of the worst. But where falls second or third to the UK in booze? I mean, if you actually culturally, you'd be surprised that most countries have a similar issue. We always assume that it's us sort of Brits and Europeans, but yeah, even like places like France, where we sort of oh, herald the them as the wine. Yeah, we sort of say, but that's like that lovely culture, the culture they've got, yeah, they have yeah. a lovely glass of wine, and it's also civil. But actually, when you look again behind the scenes, they've got a huge, huge problem with alcohol, mm. if you know what I mean. Because I think, again, where it's culturally acceptable, 
alcohol is just one of those things that just trips so many people up across the board and it doesn't discriminate. That's the one good thing about it, mm. I'd say. But back to your point earlier, I think it's really important because it is so difficult, this social pressure. That's really what we want to try and overcome. We run a survey in conjunction with Stirling University of over 2,000 people and it was like the most insane results. 97% of people said that the number one reason they didn't take a break from alcohol was social pressure. It's basically everyone. So basically everyone's saying, I'd quite like to take a break from alcohol or, you know, not drink as much, but I feel socially pressured to do so. 85% said that they've been pressured at work. I mean, this is the stuff that no one's really thinking about because everyone's mm. like, fire and brimstone, don't drink, you know, or yeah. you've got a problem. I'm like, no, actually what we should do is just exactly why these podcasts are brilliant, just try and unravel this social pressure. You don't need to be like high-fiving if someone in your, you know, uh, group says they don't want to drink, but just be sort of okay with it, mm. you know, because it's just like a lifestyle change. And one of the things, Ian and I were chatting on the walk back from the gym yesterday and we were saying, how do we, what's the best way of positioning this message? Because And I think what I quite like about 30, 60, 90 in the process of how you do it is you're saying, you, if you choose to have a drink in that time, you're not the devil. Yes, yeah. fine. But what you're reminding yourself was is your control. And I think absent and Ian and I were going to speak about this because, um, you know, abstinence from a certain food can sometimes result in a binge yeah. in that food. Yeah. yeah. I'd. What? Sorry, the question was going to be: Have you found negative implications from lengthy abstinence? So they have resulted in you know, reintroducing alcohol back into your life in in a worse state than you had it before? Or have you found that there's a, a way of kind of getting around that kind of stigma? Of being, I don't want to be completely abstinent, but I want to give up as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's a brilliant point. So everything we do really is geared around that. So that's why we have the shorter challenges. It's not all about abstinence. The co-founder, Ruri Fairbanes, drinks in control every now and again. I choose not to because why would I? That's my mindset. I just, you know, I started out with a 28-day challenge and just kept going because I felt great and all good things started to happen. But around that, so what we do exactly, so this is what's going to come back to your point, like to get to 27 days without drinking is amazing, right? And what tends to happen, we have this all or nothing mindset of, oh, I've just fucked it up. I had a drink on day 27, but the fact is you didn't have a drink for 27 days, which yeah. is amazing. And maybe you were someone that was drinking every day, for example. Let's just make it easy. That's 27 days. So if you looked at that over the course of a month, that's about a 90% reduction in where you were. That's amazing, right? So it's constantly getting people into the mindset. It's not about all or nothing being perfect. It's about transforming your relationship. So, for example, had you done the challenge again and rolled into month two and month three, but over that three-month period, you drunk two or three times. That's still amazing, right? You know, you're transforming that relationship with alcohol rather than going, I've got to be perfect, and if I slip up at any point, I've cocked it up. Mm. And there's a lot of science behind it. There's lots of science behind the fact with that mindset, when you do slip up, there's a bit of shame, there's a bit of regret, and it's like, well, I might as well now, I really ballsed it up, I might as well go and have 20 pints. I do, yeah, I feel like we live in an all or nothing society sometimes. You yeah. can't just be satisfied with the fact that, yeah, you've just had a few drinks throughout a month, but it's, it, we just seem to be like, Dry Jan's a great example because it's similar to, I mean, it's 28 day. I, there's more days in January, but like, People, your friends are literally waiting. You're like for you to Fred, at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. like no six days, sixteen. Oh, you yeah, yeah. weren't going to do it. Sort well, of this thing. is another thing about like dry Jan, which is amazing, by the way, the whole movement, and it's it's sort of again destigmatized a break from alcohol. But a lot of people use that for two reasons 
to get pissed all year because they go, well, I can do dry jam. And they also use it to go absolutely nuts in Mm. December. It's like, well, I'm going to take a month off in Jan. I've got that in the diary. So now I'm just going to let loose. And December just becomes a complete, you know, carnage right off, which is like for me in the end, I'd just wince about that stuff. It'd be like, oh, really? I've got no interest because I know what, you know, is going to follow the tiredness and lethargy and underperformance and inconsistency and all that stuff. I was just like, I've got no interest. So what's the positive psychology from your perspective behind doing 28 day challenges why do they work because it's it feels a lot more achievable so people will come in and go 90 days oh, a bit too much 365 no way i could never do that but i could do 28 days okay. like everyone can do 28 days and the secret to all of this is when you do 28 days and you start to feel really good and you get your authentic self back and a bit of mojo and a bit of momentum the chances of you then doing 90 go through the roof mm. because you're in the zone right you've experienced you you've had a glimpse behind the alcohol-free matrix, as I wins, say. Don't you? Yeah, you start to see it and you go, ah, maybe I am meant to feel like this. Maybe I am meant to be consistent in the way that I exercise, the way that I eat. I've lost some weight, I feel really good, skin's glowing, people are saying I look great. That is enough to vomp, propel you on. Whereas if you start thinking about the 90s, it's like, that's oh, too much. I also noticed in um, there was a little bit of parallel to James Clear Atomic Habits. Yeah. I'm not sure if you'd read that book before or, or during when you were No, I, I've read it since. It's, but... It was really well aligned. And... and there are so many things you speak about in terms of trigger and reframing your mindset around yeah. when you get it. Okay, so I, I'll, I'll apply it to myself because I think it'll be easier for the context of the audience. But my trigger would be Friday lunchtimes, right? There'll be a client meeting in there. And I, not so much now because I'm doing my own thing. I can't afford to have £400 lunch anymore, <laughs> sorry. But I'd have this lunch in my diary and I'd be like, okay, yeah, 12, 30. So I'll start drinking at 1. I would then drink probably until about 2 or 3 in the morning then from that moment. So yeah. it would start at Friday 1 p.m. So that's the trigger, is the lunch. Your, um, I guess, your book and methodology would say, okay, find out the trigger and then propose what, a new routine to that. So my reframe was, okay, trigger, client lunch. I'm going to flip that and make it a breakfast and put it in a gym class at 12.30. Brilliant. And it actually worked because I think it's so important to speak about the first five triggers you're going to go through. What, you know, when, in, in the first week of your 28-day challenge, which five things are going to be the biggest triggers? How can you reframe them to be a positive thing? That, I think, was a really helpful hack just to get to get started. Because after the first weekend and the second weekend, you start to see the positive yeah. results. You start to go, wow, I feel clear-headed. Wow, I've not had that weird anxious pang or lack of confidence. Or um, I had a thing about inarticulation. I couldn't speak, and my job is to speak quite a lot. Yeah. So I'd get to Monday, and I'd be like, uh, I can't. Yeah, I'm just going to do a laptop day. Yeah, yeah. The whole day. <laughs> yeah. Out of the week, that's 20% of the week. So you start to see the, the benefits quite quickly. How do you remember that part of the book? The, yeah, the trigger yeah. and the routine thing. If I if I articulated it badly, no, or no, you've done a really really good job. So the <laughs> idea is, job, is to <laughs> lovely job is to keep the trigger, swap the routine, and keep the reward. So if the reward is that sort of social glue and relaxation after work, um, and the trigger is six pm, like a lot of people's trigger on a, on a Friday, it's like right, swap the routine. What you did is brilliant, right? So you've got a couple of options. You can really mix it up and actually take yourself out of that routine completely. If the old routine was just to go for a drink, maybe go to a spin class or a Barry's boot camp, mm. or move your meeting or whatever it is to the morning, like you did. Um, or as we discussed a bit earlier, you can go and play the same routine but just swap alcohol for alcohol free so you still get that trigger you still get to socialize you still get to be with friends but you drink the alcohol free stuff i know that's not going to work for everyone and it is it's, no, but I, what i quite liked about what you said is the 
is seeing the mammoth task is actually the empowering task. Yeah. So you're almost viewing it and going, okay, I'm going to reframe this whole thing. Can I use this as, because one of the things um, when I, I think I read in the book, it was like, don't, okay, you can put these things into abstain. You know, the first week's quite hard because it's the first thing. It's the easiest time to give up. But also, if you're feeling brave and if you want to feel courageous and you're, you're ready to be in a vulnerable place, fight it and see it as a way to boost the whole thing. Yeah. Get the hardest thing out of the way first. Yeah. I think that was quite, I did that on the second week. I didn't like it. No, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's tough at first, but like it, I would say it's like training for a marathon. Like All the work you're doing in the background, and here's the thing, you can't wing it. If you try and wing it, just doesn't work like any behavioral change if you're trying to like make it up on the spot it's yeah. always going to end in disaster i want to maybe like so not planning in advance to so say that you were talking about you're a great example there moving the lunch to a breakfast routine mm. that's what i'm talking about planning okay. in advance yeah. but just turning up at lunch and going oh i think i'm not going to drink how am i going to manage this situation you'll literally always lose right because yeah, that the, primitive the brain takes so you want to drink oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i always tell the story it's the same for me i would literally go to the bar thinking i'm not i'm not going to drink tonight and I would get in the queue of the bar and smell the crisps and the hear the clatter of the glasses. Think and, of the fun you'll have. Yeah, and then suddenly that like question comes through, the beer-soaked air, what do you want? And I'm like, sparkling water, sparkling water. Pint of Stella, please. Yeah. <laughs> right? I cannot tell you how many times I did that. I'm like, how did that possibly happen? And then you realize it's just social and psychological conditioning. If, if you underpin that with like um, habit loops and hardwired sort of, because you, you would have like a really a 10-year-old exactly. habit of standing in grain beer. 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 It's just what, the noises, the smell, yeah, everything. Yeah. They're all stimulants of, of ordering that beer. Yeah. Have you, how do you unravel that? How do you go, okay, let's go back? Yeah, so this is about being really well prepared and, and planning. So if you're trying to decide it in that moment, in the queue, you're always going to lose. Okay. So you've got to be prepared ahead of the game. It sounds like anal and over the top, but like you discovered, it makes a massive difference. For example, know before you walk in there what you're going to have to drink in terms of an alcohol-free option what the backup plan's going to be and rehearse it and visualize it. Like put yourself in that situation. This is like being an athlete, you know? Mm. So a lot of the stuff we do is like how you train athletes, visualize that moment when you're in the bar, how you're going to react. They're going to ask you that question. You're going to order your alcohol-free beer or sparkling water and train yourself so when that moment comes, you're ready. Whereas if you try and just make that up on the spot, you're going to lose. Mm. This is why the planning it sounds anal, but especially in that first week to two is really important. And then I try and get into the mindset of, this is what I'm training for. Let's throw myself into the action. Like you said, it's like training for a marathon and never running the race, right? The race for lots of people are those big social events, you know, the big birthday party or whatever it is. Just go and do it alcohol-free and see how you get on. Yeah. And you might enjoy bits of it and some of it you might hate is the yeah. truth. Yeah, once it gets past a certain hour, yeah. when everyone else is pissed, it's just, it's just it's not intolerable, fun. isn't it? Really? And some people, genuinely, Ruri, the co-founder, is a complete nut job and he loves it, right? He's really outgoing, really gregarious. And he, when people get drunk, he comes to life. So he loves that two, three in the morning with loads of drunk people. Wow. I cannot stand it. It's like the worst thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. so, since you stopped doing it, you've gone, what was I doing? What was I doing? Like, I, I've got friends that I've got pint limits with. So I've got one <laughs> colleague, if he drinks more than five pints, I go, because he turns into a complete dick and really? he knows it. So I'm like, you can keep drinking. As soon as you hit your limit, I'm going. Yeah, so yeah. You can, if you want me to stay longer, slow down. Wow. But if you drink at, at that pace, when you get to there, you're going to turn into a dick and I'm going to go, right? And, and I know it sounds funny, but you almost have to put these things in place with certain people because it's really, it's a bit sad. But having been there myself, right, I totally get it. So it's not like I'm going, oh, look, you're all terrible because I know that was probably me, mm, yeah. you know, not so long ago. Have you found that any of your friends don't, 
hang out with you anymore? Or maybe vice versa, the people that you've cut off or... or yeah, I mean, again, I was in slightly different... So mid-30s, right? So a little bit older than you guys, but I had a massive social circle. Yeah, and my, my best mate, Lenny, when I first stopped drinking, put me in the boring corner and said, you can come out when you start drinking again. Yeah. But, you know, many a true word spoken in jest, if you know what I mean. As much mm -hmm. as he was joking, there was a big element of being serious. Like, we'd met whilst drinking. We lived together. We had the crack, you know what I mean? We did everything together, right? We were like thick as thieves, best mates in the world. But our lives always evolved around alcohol. So, like, when one of the, you know, the pair of you t takes that off, it took a bit of adjustment. That being said, he's my biggest support now. I'll spend loads of time with him. And obviously, we've got a little bit older and kids and all that sort of stuff, mm. right? So life slide, slowed down a bit. So that's definitely a factor. But, you know, for example, when I go away on lads' weekends, they'll arrange mountain biking now, right? So at least there's something going on that's not, mm -hmm. let's just sit in the, like we used to, just let's just sit in the pub and mm -hmm. get pissed up. You know, that's what a lot of people do when they go I think, away I as think lads. It's interesting because I think there is, uh, in your late 20s, like, there is time for that kind of stuff. But I would definitely, because I, I think you'd be very hard pushed to be convincing everyone in their 20s, I know the millennials are changing, but particularly in our age group, to give up forever or to oh, abstain. Yeah. But I definitely, I think the 30-day thing is so important for anyone yeah. to try. What would you suggest to those people? Because Friday night in London is exactly that. It's just boozy. And there's, there's very little to do, or at least that's what I would think. What would you suggest as an alternative, do you think? Yeah, and again, all of this stuff takes a bit of extra effort because the mm. truth is the lazy option, the easy option is just to go to the pub. Yeah, it's so just easy. Is, right? so it's so easy. Resistance. It's <laughs> like, there it is. This is what we always do. So it takes a bit of extra effort, but not much. But there's lo there is loads of other stuff going on. You just don't see it. Like everything in life, like... You know, it's all that sort of almost like the secret. And if you're into the Anthony Robbins stuff, which I am, and, you know, when you put these goals out into the world, you start to see the resources, the people and the places and the things that you need to achieve those things. It's a bit like going alcohol-free. Yeah. When you start to switch your mind onto it, you start to realize that actually not everyone just goes to the pub on a Friday. Do you know what I mean, there's another group of people that do other things, whether they go to a Barry's boot camp or a spin, you know, if you want that sort of young, energetic type of thing or a dance or whatever it is, or theatre or... Give I know some glasses. of it probably sounds a bit bore off, but there'll be lots of other exciting things going on. And also there's like some of the sober rave, st rave stuff is mm. brilliant. If you've sober ever rave? Yeah, they're okay. amazing. They're, they're running London. Um, well, uh, Morning Gloryville is one of them. Uh. They're brilliant. I went on one which is on a boat that went up and down the Thames, right? People turn up in their gym kit. This is at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning before work, properly rock it out, banging tunes, <laughs> loads of... I thought it was going to be... My fear was going to be loads of people who had been out the night before, still oh, off their nuts and gone, <laughs> this is a great idea, let's yeah, just go yeah, to yeah. this thing. It wasn't. It was, again, people in gym kit. Wow. But full of like really like attractive boys, girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a brilliant place to meet, you know the other sex or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It is true. But you would that, never have known that existed. That is one thing and here's one thing that I don't think we speak enough about is Ian and I are both heavily single. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what we mean by that is that we we put a lot of our goals and work and per everything else and friends and boozing ahead of dating. I particularly do. Um, and we sort of dream that on a Friday night we'll sort of bump into this wonderful lady who's going to be there and able to understand our slurry English. Um, the fact of the matter is it's never the case. It's very rare, I think, to meet somebody that you want to connect with and, and share whatever the rest of your life with what you're looking for. But this is a great, another alternative to meeting better people that I guess are more akin to your 90% of how you live your life. Because I think yeah. mm. that is the thing. 90% of how we live our lives are very healthy and they're very goal-orientated. Exactly. And actually, we're going to come onto this as well. What? Do you... I was going to say, Jack, I was going to say, you have actually met two girls that 
don't drink at all and you weren't able to no, fulfill I was, those I was relationships. No, I a girl. Weirdly, I met her at 3 a.m. at a club and she was she was sober and I was drunk anyway. But we went on a few dates and I it wasn't because she didn't drink. It, maybe it was. The way I look at it now, I was like, I don't know how this can carry on because you can A, find out who I really am at some point and, and B... It was enjoyable. The day was extremely, it was definitely very enjoyable. But I do think alcohol can be lubrication in some situations to reduce, you know, um, walls and that kind of stuff. So I just, but then I think it's reframing, isn't it? Because I think if you then go out to the right places, go to this morning glory and meet somebody in a different uh, setting and not out at 3 a.m. in the morning, then they'll be much more used to speaking to people sober anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a case of reframing it and going, I'm just not going to meet some of your nights out now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's reframing and retraining because mm. it's like it's been so easy for us. I'm sure you started drinking in your teens like I did when I was sort of 13. And the reason I started drinking because I was a bit of a shy, geeky ginger kid and talking to girls was really difficult. Then I had a couple of drinks and went, oh, this is like elixir. I can talk to girls now. So you make a real like strong neural you know, association with the fact that I drink alcohol, I can talk to girls, and that sort of sticks with you. So you must lose the opportunity from then on to learn how to socialise without it. That's the mm. sort of sad part when you look back and go, actually, in cultures that don't have alcohol, they all socialise, they still have a laugh, they still have a great time, they still go out on Fridays, but they've just trained themselves over that same period yeah. to do it without alcohol. Yeah. I find um, I've, I'm better at socialising in situations without alcohol now, but the situations that you find yourself in are so loud and boozy and whatever. It's like, I can't can't do anything here other than just drink and get amongst it because it's like, you're, like that Cats and Jammers place. Oh, my God. That was someone's birthday. <laughs> it's just a big German You're literally there. Stein. You can't, right, you can't right. do anything apart from just neck All you oh, can yeah. do there is get pissed because you can't hear anyone speaking. So there's nothing else. So there's nothing to do. So I was trying to go on. I was doing, I was ordering um, soda water and lemonades. I do that quite often to sneak, like pretend it's yeah. a G&T or whatever. But the lime cordial gave it away that day because it was bright green. <laughs> um, Rumbled. Yeah. And like we'd pop out for cigarettes and I could speak there. But other than that, I'm just sitting there like, yeah, this is terrible. Yeah. I just want to go. I don't know, it was so disrespectful to your birthday, but I have to just get out of it because I just like... And it's it's so true. And then what I started to realise that a lot of my drinking was to drown out other drunk people or the situation. Yeah. So I was exactly that. I'd go to a bar like that and think, I don't want to drink, but I can't bear to be here like, and not drink because I'm uncomfortable. I'm anxious. Mm. There's too many people. It's too loud. It's too noisy. Mm. Therefore, I'm going to sort of drown that out by getting drunk. And that was the stuff. They were big realisations for me because I was like, hold on, that is nuts. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing that? Yeah, yeah. We're doing this thing that's awful for us, not because we want to, because we enjoy it. It's because actually the environment that we're in, we can't stand. And the only way we can make it bearable is to get pissed. It's, mm -hmm. It sounds like you've been on a bit of a... Just from hearing about your mentality now, it sounds like you've been on a bit of a spiritual journey to understand who you are and your authentic self. What... And we've interviewed so many guys that have done that and, and girls that have done a very similar thing that you can see and you can feel the energy and presence in the room. What, what, what did you do to kind of start that journey? What was the kind of like, okay, right, I need to become, A, I'm, I'm very aware now, um, now I'm sober, because we had a guy, Josh Connolly, on here who definitely used alcohol as, a, um, as an aid to get through a really tough time. Yeah. Um, and he said it was terrifying. The minute you start drinking and then taking drugs, you're suddenly hugely aware of who yeah. you are as a person. That can be so intimidating to some people that they don't want, they don't want it. And, yeah. you know, sadly, for Josh's case, he tried committing suicide and then since then has become hyper-aware. He studied Eckhart Tolle and the power of now and this kind of stuff. Yours was less extreme and actually, I would guess, more relatable for a lot of our audience. What was your step to uh, spiritual understanding? 
Well, mine really started with a book I read all the time. I mentioned that even when I was playing football, I started to read from the age of 16, anything and get my hands on, you know, self-development, fiction, catch 22 type of stuff, which I love. But then I read a book um, about 10 years ago called Awaken the Giant Within by Anthony Robbins. Robbins, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it changed the game completely for me. I mean, bearing in mind, so I was mid 30s then, again, at the height of this pinnacle of traditional success, in that, you know, chasing that dream that everyone chases, not, you know, unhappy, unfulfilled, all that sort of stuff. And this big red book sat on my bedside table for about three months. I didn't go near it. I didn't need self development. Why would I need self development? I was this, you know, broker, blah, 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 tough guy. I didn't need any of that help. Um, but it sat there and it sat there and it sat there. And one day I picked it up and went, oh my God, that's just, and I didn't put it down. It's a big tomb of a book. I read it over the course of about a day and a half and it just changed everything. And there was one line in that that started to change everything for me and it was that we're not, men are not shaped by um, the the events that happen to them, but their beliefs about those events. Right, and that just started to check because I thought, hold on a minute, for the first time ever, I started to realize maybe I've got a bit of control over everything that's going on in my life. Up to that point, I just thought I was lucky. You know, some people are lucky, some people are not. I was lucky I'd stumbled into this job and this career and all that sort of stuff. I was lucky to have my friendships and my relationships. And that was the first time I went, oh, hold on a minute, maybe I can actually control everything by controlling my beliefs. Because if you trace it back to a guy called Epictetus, who's a great Stoic philosopher, that quote really first comes from. But basically what he says is that you've only got control over one thing and that's your beliefs. But if you control your beliefs, you control everything. This is, I love this. I, I could stick on Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius, who is yeah. a G, um, <laughs> uh, for a long time. Like, cause, and I, I love that, that this is where it stems back to and it's kind of awareness. What was that quote? So you're, you are not... Yeah, so I just, I, I half butchered it. So it's not, <laughs> let me just get it right. So it's not... Um, it's Controlled. not events that shape. It's not events that shape your life, but your beliefs about them. Okay, I still butchered it slightly, but it's along those lines. Basically, what it's saying is that you've got control to choose what you believe, and therefore, if you choose what you believe, you choose what you see on the outside. That yeah. stuff was just game changing for me. So that so was that's 10 that years moment ago. of clarity. There's the like, spiritual oh. pang. Like, whoa, I understand. This is it. What now? So, like, how do you? Because okay, you're still in your brokering job then. Uh, how do you then? What are the steps? And you've gone right. Okay, whoa, that's quite big. Was it just a daily practice now of stoicism or like... It was a sort of slow burn from there. But the first thing I did was picked up all those ideas and applied it to my business, uh-huh. which was great. I was like, brilliant. Now I can run rings around people, right? Because now I understand what how all these things work. Uh, sorry, so a uh, broker. Okay, so yeah, yeah. this is still the brokerage, which is we're in the middleman between buyers and sellers of oil futures. The guys mm. with the bright jackets in the trading pits, but we were upstairs on the phones. But that was it. So first I applied it to my business and it was like rocket fuel. Because that really took off. Just that learning, right? That understanding of I've got control over things now. If someone picks up the phone, they put down the phone on me, I can choose what I I believe. I can choose that that person hates me, so I'm never going to pick the phone up again. Or I can actually believe maybe they're having a busy day, I'm going to pick the phone up again. And guess what? I started to do more and more business because I started to train my mind to just choose what I decided to believe. That's Mm. a simple thing, but it's worth a lot of you know, I love this because it's not and here's where we tread a really thin line it's not toxic positivity of like just believe hey yeah. you just believe and I I love Tony Robbins but sometimes when you listen to some of his yeah you've got to take bits of it proper yeah. American and, yeah. I, and, and I think and that's I love Americans for that but that can be their detriment too because toxic positivity would suggest that there is no room for negative thoughts and there is no room for reframing. It's just, you have to ignore them all. And this the, the whole, the secret and the kind of yeah. self-improvement school of 1980, 1990. I, I love that. And I think the way that you've articulated it is much better in that actually I've 
chosen to believe the positive situation out of this scenario, but understand there could be a view on negativity as well at the same time. Oh, absolutely. You know, right? There's, there's, maybe there's a high chance that they hate you. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like, I've got an option. And, uh, it's almost like you've become like duck feather. It's like the water's dripping yeah. off you now. These, these things don't stick on you anymore. They're it's just, just like, I've got an option to choose, right? I, I don't know the answer because he's just put the phone down on me, right? I don't know whether it's because he hates me or because he's just busy, right? So there's an option I'm going to choose. He's busy. Because then it makes it a lot easy, easier for me to pick the phone up in five minutes and ring him back. Because yeah. if I believe he hates me, I'm not picking that phone up again. <laughs> and then you ring him back and he still hates you. And he puts it down and go, oh, maybe he's really busy. I phone him back the third time and he goes, stop bothering me. What have you got? And then I do a deal with him. Yeah. And now I've got a new client. That's the difference. And suddenly you're onwards and upwards. So you say the phone call two and three would never have happened had you not have reframed that. No. And that's what, you know, and, and this is just a real, you know, my initial example in, in Broken, but that that stops so many people, right? Because it's hard to do. If someone puts the phone down on you aggressively, do you ring them back or not? Mm-hmm. And maybe you do the first few times, but then when you're on your like 500th time of that happened to you, maybe you stop doing that. Mm. But if you can keep going through that and pushing through those barriers, he picks the phone up on the third time because he was busy. Yeah. Because you never know, right? You're just mind reading the situation. He was busy. He goes, hi, how you doing? What have you got? I've got this market, right? Yeah, you're done. Now I've done a deal with someone that didn't know me. I've built a relationship. Can I meet you for a coffee, not a beer? Mm. Boom. <laughs> I'm onwards and upwards. And that, so that started to make a difference, first and foremost. And then I got really into that type of self-development, reading from Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, all that sort I of stuff. I meditations, but I just, it's, the language is not... It's, it's difficult. I mean, it wasn't meant for other people to read the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the meditations. It was his personal journal. So you've got to see through that a little bit. But all of that type of... And I love that idea that... You know, in those days gone by, life was so tough. Yeah. You, know, you were threatened with exile or death or anything. Barbarians could raid your village at any second. So that mentality, and I think that's why the entrepreneurial community have really picked up on it as yes. well. Because, and what I mean now, it, it's a real roller coaster of emotions. So being able to manage that is is like rocket fuel. It's like mm. a superpower because then you can keep your head when everyone else is losing. There's and there's another brilliant. If, I'll if, yeah, yeah. I read yeah. that last week. The one I, I read something yesterday, which I thought was unbelievable, and it was something like a bad day for the ego is a great day for the soul. And if you just make, yeah. take that into everything, every situation of being like, I know you've just been dumped. I know she just cheated on you. I know whatever's happened. Um, I know you've just drunk an alcohol and it's awful and, it, and you feel shit. But right now, this feeling of negativity that you're going through is great for your self development in the next. Yeah. 20 years of your life it's it's all material there's a, an author called robert green who wrote mastery mm-hmm. um and i really like him but he's got a saying it's all material he's an author and a writer and a podcaster and all that sort of stuff and he's like basically whatever happens to me good and bad it's all material i can use it again i can use it to learn i can use it to teach from so when things go really belly up and it hurts and you're caught up in it the day after or the day after that is an opportunity to reflect on it and go there's tons of learning in there yeah the way that i handled that or it's a story it's a story that you can then share with other people on your podcast or whatever it is to help them. Mm. And I think that's a brilliant approach, right? Because then everything becomes interesting. Yeah, stuff still hurts, mm. but you can learn from it rather than the traditional approach is hide it, hide from it. It's, you know, I'm ashamed. It's I've cocked it up. I don't want anyone to know. And then there's no learning no. in that. But I think when you switch that, you know, flick that mindset, it's totally different. Yeah, I completely agree. Just on the one, I just want to make sure we speak enough about one, you know, beer. So, the, what's the mission? Where's it heading? Obviously, you're now at 100,000 members, <laughs> not 25. Um, that just shows, by the way, how quickly it's grown. Because when I read yeah. that stat on another podcast, how, I mean, two, how we, two years ago, whatever, yeah, yeah. it was. So like triple, quadruple growth in a short amount of time. Mm. Why is that happening? Where are you heading? What's the purpose of all of this? Yeah, so to sort of just quickly double back. So about two years ago, we were running it 
for free. It was this, you know, we were well-paid brokers, as mentioned, and we just wanted to get this message out there, inspire people, there's nothing to give up and everything to gain. And then we realised that free costs an absolute fortune. You know, we've both spent hundreds of thousands of pounds each on this thing, plus we were running alongside our brokerages and all that sort of stuff. So we were totally worn out, maxed out, and we are like, look, we can't do this anymore, which is a real shame because at that point we still had about 25 thousand people in the system as it were that were being inspired that were sending these messages all the time going this is changing my life but we just couldn't finance it and we couldn't run it we we were out basically um and we getting feedback from your members saying this is amazing it's brilliant and you just couldn't finance it we just couldn't finance it and we couldn't we just couldn't keep it going you know to be not thinking how to monetize it all the time at that point no it hadn't crossed our mind it it was just always let's just give this thing away for free in our mind we were like this it should be free we're well-paid brokers let's just this is our way of giving back and then we reached this this cutoff point and only by a fluke i'd created an online course um that had an easy option to switch it onto a paid for model so we went like let's just shut it down for two weeks let's just go on holiday and just get you know rest and recuperate and i flicked the switch we came back two weeks later and it was like a little miracle we'd sold five of these courses i was like i get it and that was the moment we both went right now maybe we can turn this into a business that does good in the world we can hire staff to take the pressure off us we can use any revenue that comes in to market to more people and try and turn this into a real engine and use our business acumen and our energy and our talents and all that sort of stuff to really do something big in the world with this thing we didn't look back you know after that pam mcmillan approached us about the book which was great 28 day alcohol free challenge and then fast forward about two years we took in our first round of funding, our seed funding, which was 1.1 million. We're just going out for our second round of funding, which values the business around 10 million, right? And the reason that the business part of it is important to us because it will attract investment. Once we get investment, we can just go bigger and, and, and be better, right? And ultimately, the only way that business can grow is if it helps lots of people. You can't have one without the other. So mm-hmm. the more successful the business, the more people we help. The more people we help, the more successful the business, right? So it's a business that does good in the world that we can stand behind, that we can really go for it because there's not enough out there. Do you, do you, watch, do you have a long-term vision for it? To transform the world's relationship with alcohol. It's like the big picture vision, but you know, in the next two to three years, probably to reach a million members globally and then really uh, you know we're looking at all different types of models but maybe almost like a Weight Watchers for alcohol free Mm. where there's like little silos people running their own groups and bringing people together and inspiring really just to try and break down this this social stigma around getting alcohol free so like people like Ollie and I are your audience matching our age are you finding people in their 20s are more open to your service or your products yeah I mean I think our demographic is slightly older I'd say the majority of sort of into their mid-30s mm. to mid-40s is probably like the, the the big demographic. And again, I think that's an age thing. I think, but what's happening? Like we're having this wonderful conversation right now. I guarantee you 10 years ago, we would not be, if you had a podcast, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. Right. It wouldn't be on anyone's radar. So the fact that it is on your radar now as a 27-year-old says it all. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think you're starting to think differently. And then back to that point, like a lot of our members take a break. Some of them go back to drinking in full control. Some of them keep going. And I think the really important message, especially for younger people like yourselves, is to get really tight on the breaks, i.e. if you have got the big event coming up and you know you're not really going to get through it alcohol-free or it's going to be not very enjoyable, really do the work to not drink in between. 
cut out all the mindless crap. Do you know what I mean? All the mindless, let's just go for five pints on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday because yeah. it's a day ending. Why? I think it's getting really tactical with it. I think saying to people, don't drink in your 20s, it's just, it's just not really, for a lot of people, it's not an option. But here's the secret to it all. I think if you do get tactical with it and you do drink occasionally, suddenly you'll get that momentum and there'll come a point where you go, well, actually, maybe I just won't drink this weekend because why would I? And then suddenly you're starting to build that you know, bigger picture momentum to the point that maybe you choose not to drink because mm-hmm. why would you? It doesn't fit with your healthy lifestyle. So I'm all about this being a healthy lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. It's no, there's no stigma. You're not giving anything up. It's just like going to the gym or eating a plant-based diet. It's the same thing. It's just lifestyle. And what, what noticeable physical and mental benefits do you have? With this jam, like when you first started, what were you noticing? Yeah, so I mean, I lost a lot of weight. I lost three stone in weight, um, 42 pounds. My body fat went from 35% down to below 10% where it is today. My resting heart rate went from 68 that I mentioned down to 44. Wow. Athlete 44 again. And this is a true story around that. I, I mentioned earlier that I'd been diagnosed with heart disease in my mid-30s. Mm. And the reason that happened, my dad had a treble bypass. I've got two brothers. So the three of us went and got checked out because is it hereditary? Of course, my two other brothers, not a problem. You know, clean bill of health. Mm. And it was always going to be me. You've got heart disease, right? I shouldn't have had heart disease at 35. You should not have heart disease. Right. There's a calcium score. I showed up on the score. That was a big, you know, awakening moment for me. Fast forward a year, I'm on statins. I go back to the same cardiologist. Nothing's changed. It was embarrassing. I went back in there, still overweight, still unhealthy. I'd had this big shock in my life, big scare, an early warning sign, nothing done. You know, it's pathetic really going back in there. But you know what? The cardiologist didn't even flinch because I'd say 99.9% of the people go back exactly the same. But I did say to him in that meeting, I'm going to stop drinking. I just started thinking about not drinking. And I, I needed something to say to him to make it look like I was actually going <laughs> to like make a bit of an effort. But but sure enough, I went back there a year later and not only had I stopped drinking, I'd lost all the weight. I'd changed a plant-based diet because I figured that was the best diet for me. I was exercising, de-stressed, whatnot. Go back to the cardiologist. Within five minutes, he said the word astounding about mm. five times. And I was like, this, this is going to be good. And he was like, look, this is amazing. This is astounding. Your, your resting heart rate's gone from 68 down to 44. You've lost all the weight. Your cholesterol's amazing. Your blood pressure's like absolutely fantastic. I want your heart disease. We're really interested by this because you've stopped it. And he went, we were so interested. And he called in like the radiologist guy. We took a closer look and it looks as though you've reversed it. How wow. cool is that? That's, that is that's a true cool. story. And that's obviously not just down to the alcohol, but it was 100% down to the alcohol that I had the consistency to eat well, train well, yes. de-stress. So it was that it, big block. That it's, was the linchpin. The it's the linchpin. It's the gateway to all of those good things for me because this is something that is really important, I think, to you guys as well. It's consistency. When you drink, you're inconsistent. Mm. You know it. You described that Monday morning when you come in, you don't want to face the world, right? Mm. If you add that up, say you go out on a Thursday and you have a big weekend, you lose a Monday and a Friday. It's two days a week, right? Magnify that over the year. You're losing a quarter of your productive, like energized time mm. to a self-inflicted hangover. Just imagine if you've got that back. And the truth is, for most mm. people, it's probably more like half yeah. Imagine if you got half your time and you're firing on all cylinders. Yeah. What it's do. definitely more than two days because it's certainly if you look at your weekends, I wrote it down earlier, I would say that I often think, oh, this weekend I might like, dabble with a bit of Spanish or I might, you know, you've always talked about learning an instrument. That like that's a perfect time, isn't it, your weekend, but you spend it on the couch hungover in bits. And then you go on Monday and you've got to do your work. And then, like, there's no extra learning time. Like, mm. that's perfect time for extracurricular activities. Yeah. So do the maths around that. Just like play out. If you're losing half of your like 
productive time to self-inflicted like lethargy that's just nuts right mm. and I think that starts to get you in the mindset of alright if I'm going to drink I'm going to be strategic about it because I don't want to lose my consistency I don't want to be like under the weather for 50% of the time yeah I've got a wedding maybe I'm going to be strategic about drinking at that wedding but all the other stuff I'm not drinking because mm. why would I I want to learn Spanish I want to knock it out of the park every single day in the office because I want to make the sales I want to make the cash I want to you know the house the car whatever it is your aspirations are I want to meet the girl whatever it is and then when you start to get into that mindset, it starts to change. Do you know what I mean? You start to see things a bit differently. Like I said before, you start to see the things, the resources and the people and the places and the books and the inspirational characters because you're seeing sport now. I'm constantly making the link back to professional mm. sport, right? Which are all guys and girls your age, right? 27 is the peak for most athletes. Sport stopped drinking a long while ago. Of course, there's still the odd story of someone falling out of a nightclub, but on the whole, you know, I'm still involved in professional sport. I'm going out to Portsmouth next week to talk to the, the team there. Um, professional sports, they've worked it out, right? There is no place for alcohol or that inconsistency in their life. Mm. Of course, there's still some that drink, but on the whole, they don't. And I think that's really important to connect with as like young men and women that actually like, these guys are crushing it in their sport, but why is you being a better entrepreneur? Why, why is that any different? Why is that any different to a guy who wants to score a goal on the premiership? It's not. Why is that any different to a guy that wants to win a medal in the long jump? It's not. In, in my opinion, mm -hmm. you, your, their goals and aspirations are to make them happy and fulfilled. Your goals and aspirations are exactly the same, whether it's to be an entrepreneur or whether it's to be a broker. It's the same stuff. So yeah. why are we treating ourselves differently? Well, that's what Nicole was saying, wasn't it? She's, like, she's like saying... She's like standing you, in your own way. <laughs> yeah, you're standing in your own way. Like you want to be so successful and everything. It's like, why are you... You know, it's having that time, but like we discussed, it's just it is a lot more difficult in your in your twenties. Absolutely, and that's it. Doesn't make any of this any yeah. easier. All of this stuff, but what it does, it starts to get you thinking. And even if you cut down, mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying. If you cut out all the needless crap that doesn't mm -hmm. need to be there, you're still then operating at eighty percent of your best instead of fifty percent. Yes, of course. And then over time, I'm convinced you'll it will you'll weed it out of your life because you go, I just don't need it. Do you I, see people... Sorry. No, no, I was just saying, I, I couldn't recommend highly enough. It's taking that, that month out and not in January to try and do it because I think there has to be some sort of July. event that you've had to... July, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it's, it is amazing when you've had that event that you've gone, I didn't drink to that because I was in that yeah. challenge thing. Whereas I was very selective with my, with my choice. I picked it in April just after quite a heavy March and there was nothing yeah. in my diary for three weeks. And that's why I got to 26 days. Yeah, because then you so, can lock yourself away. And, I need and you're to do right. it again. I think I need to do it again, but do, properly this time. And just do it. And this is the thing. There's never the perfect time to start because you'll always look at the diary yeah. and there's always the birthday party or the wedding or whatever it is. So you've just got to do it. And actually, the best part of the whole challenge is when you go to the wedding and you don't drink. Yes. Because there's a real sense of, do you know what? I just did that. I, I almost, you probably believed it was impossible. Like I believe my biggest fear was how the hell am I going to dance at weddings? I was like, that's impossible. I can't do that sober, if you know what I mean. And when you overcome that, and it wasn't nice, it wasn't pretty, to, to be fair, <laughs> you, you don't want to see it, but I did it, and it was like a real like confidence. Never Actually, invited just, one ever again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who's the crazy ginger guy do throwing his arms and legs yeah. everywhere? Um, Dancing is a huge thing, actually. It is. It? I mean, it's all of these huge. things, are, and I, honestly, they are so tough, but... 
there's such a confidence that comes yeah. from doing it. Even if, again, like my dancing, I don't rush on the dance floor now. It's not like, hey, I danced once, I can't <laughs> wait to get up there. Like, it's still, I find it painful almost. You're learning about what your authentic self is, right? I guess yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, so I know that I'm uncomfortable on a dance floor, <laughs> right? That's mm. big. <laughs> In fact, even just because you're drunk doesn't mean you're a better dancer. No. It just means your perception of your dancing is better. Yeah, you just like, well, you don't care it either. That's, yeah. you drink, no. Drinking just, I don't care what I look like right no. now. No, exactly. But you need to get to that point to even get on the dance floor. Yeah. Whereas now I can go on there and be self-conscious and, you know, it's not like I'm John Travolta far from it. <laughs> but I can do it. And because I overcome it whilst without alcohol. So then you get to keep all that learning and all that confidence because otherwise you're always sort of associating it with alcohol. The only reason I can dance is because I get drunk or the only reason I can chat up girls is because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm drunk. So when you start to remove that and get over those hurdles or go to the wedding or the big birthdays without it, there's a real confidence that starts to build, like, you know, deep inside. That's a game changer. Mm. That's amazing. Um, we've got a few questions that cool. we've asked that we yeah, have. Still got like our stock 10 minutes. It's nice. Okay. Um, we're just flipping it, flipping it back into, I guess, age. I want to ask my 21-year-old people question. Mm. Um, one of our questions is, if you work, because you've read lots of books and you've been in the world of self-improvement, you said you read your first one at 16, which is yeah. quite impressive. What would you say if you had a megaphone and a room full of 21-year-olds in front of you? Uh, what would your parting advice be to those guys? You're not dying, but you want, you know, <laughs> if you were saying anything to them, what would you say? Well, I, do you know what I'll do? I'll borrow a line from Einstein, because this is a, a bit along the lines... He's not been quoted here before. Is he not? Yeah, for the, the first time. No, the, well, it's the greatest choice you'll ever make is whether you believe you live in a hostile or a friendly universe. And I love that, right? The greatest choice you'll ever get to make is whether you believe you live in a hostile or a friendly universe. And this is back to what I'm saying about belief. You know, it's it's that so you get to choose the environment that you live in because it's what you perceive it to be. It's as simple as that. And that's what all these great epitaphists were telling us. Anthony Robbins tells us. Einstein's telling us that we get to choose. And I think that's really important because I think a lot of people at the moment are so caught up in limiting beliefs and what everyone else is telling them about the world Ultimately, you get to decide. Mm. I think that's really powerful. Wow, I really like that one. Yeah, that's really good. That is, again, it's this kind of selection. It's the, the Marcus Aurelius thing, and I just love it. It's, it for me, the good thing that I like, right, that I'm enjoying at the moment about being still being into self-improvement, because I think some of us take some time out of it, because it's like, you can definitely overload. You yeah. You have all those books that scare the shit out of you, and then you don't read anything. They just stare at you, don't they? They do, and, it's, and then <laughs> somebody there. recommends a fucking book, and you're like, no, not another one, I'm going <laughs> yeah, yeah. ten. But... One of the one of the best things that I'm realizing now is is I'm starting to see the the woven thread between all of them. Yeah, and it is that it's going back to stoicism. You know, that's where it all goes back to exactly. And it's all a mindset and reframing. And I just yeah, we we try and make this podcast as non preachy as possible. The great thing about learning about a lot of this self improvement is actually self improvement has been given a bit of a bad name because it has been broken down into so many different compartmentalizations from people going, this side of my life, this is the chimp paradox, and this is how you live your life yeah. now, or this is the 10 steps of how not to be a villain. There's all these different things. Yeah. But actually, once you've read enough of them, you understand that it's just stemming back to one belief and yeah. one way of thinking. That, I think, is reducing a lot of my anxiety around self-improvement at the moment. But that's so true, and that's a really brilliant point, because once you read enough of it, you start to see the common threads, and they're the stuff that you start to embody then. Yes. And it's less about the perfect book with yeah. the perfect 
10 steps to be amazingly seven, productive and highly uh, what was it Stephen Covey this one stressed the fuck out of me for like two years <laughs> right. seven, seven highly effect, uh, habits of a highly effective people I can't even say it right but there it was this thing and it had this dial and the dial was like this is a, a it had religion which is quite presumptuous but it had like your religion your family and your work and your and your da, 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 it went around and I was like okay and it was like and then you have to apply these three different thoughts to each thing and you suddenly you're like oh, I'm a robot, but I'm really not, I don't understand, it's not very fluid. But I remember for two years trying to apply this way of thinking, and I was like, i got to get fucking religion as well. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I've got to pack it all in before before breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, and again, like Robin Sharma, I don't know if you saw yeah. recently, the 5am book's just come out, and he's banging the drum about that. Love it. Some people aren't morning people. I, I truly believe 100%. That. So to say that, you, to join this movement of a better life, you have to start at five in the morning. Well, I'm a vampire. I like going. I like waking up at ten, but I go to bed at three a.m. and I get shit done at that time. It just seems there are so many improvement things that are so exclusive to your to the way that humans live their life in a very diverse way. Yes, absolutely. But I think with all of those things, you've got to pick and choose the ones that talk to you exactly yeah. that. If you're a night person, don't bother with the five a.m. Sack that. Unless you're going on till yeah until five a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're exactly. sober rave. And that's yeah, <laughs> you're still going through from the night before. But no, I think be selective. But the thing is. Do dip your toe in because, mm. as you know, there's so much good stuff in there. I think as a younger person, like my number one tip is to read books. It just is. I think it's the greatest development tool you'll ever have. And it doesn't even matter what they are, essentially. It doesn't have to be on self-development, biographies, or even fiction. Some brilliant mm. fiction books. But I think constantly fuel your mind with books. It's the greatest gift. And here's another thing I think that's really interesting in this day and age is a thing called Deep Work, which I really like. Great guy called Cal Newport. Um, his whole thesis is that just in a present moment when like deep thinking and outside the box thinking is prized more than ever, it's increasingly rare because everyone's so distracted. Yeah. Everyone's so on their phones, they're just a beep away. So people are not getting deep enough to make these big breakthroughs yes. in their careers and in their jobs and all that sort of stuff. So he cultivates this thing called deep work. That's the name of the book where you just block off periods of time whether it's an hour or 90 minutes, no phones, no distractions, and you do your deep work. And I think... It's almost like a superpower, yeah. especially for a young man and women because most people, all of your peers, are going to be half distracted. They They're are. going to be half on their phone. So the person that puts that away for a minute, and that's not being Luddite at all, I think mm. it's just being really clever and actually gets really deep into the work that they're trying to do, whether on themselves or within their careers, you will make the breakthroughs that no one else is seeing because so no true. one else is getting there. We've had this, you know, our swim on Monday evenings. Just swimming, because swimming, swimming is the only way to guarantee yourself not to be electronically connected to something. Yeah. If you are, you might die. Um, but yeah, that that to me is where I get all my mental capacity. In fact, I can't, I've come out and written my mate's best man speech. He's not even engaged. Right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had like four different thoughts. I was like, oh my God, that's a good idea. That's good. And, I and like, you might not actually. I was going to say, like, he's not even his best man. I don't think he's going <laughs> to be. I think he's his brother. But I'll give it to his brother. And be like, this is right, brother. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote like this that. for you. This yeah, is brilliant. Yeah. But that's what I mean. You know, the, the, the space, the gaps you're giving yourself in by, you know, tech fasting or whatever. I think it's so important. Mm. There's one thing I'll chat to you about after is actually we're gonna, we, we want to, one of our dreams is to start a festival called Tech Fast Week where we great invite idea. like people and bands and stuff that are down for it and actually like what happens to the great days of connecting to an audience, connecting to humans around you, having spontaneous conversation and not filming everything and just having like, I don't know, 
Polaroid cameras and a Nokia 3310 to contact whoever you need to if you need to. But it just removes that scroll comparison thinking, which I think is our problem. It's just bringing people down. Like I've got a Nokia in my bag, so I use a Nokia. Oh, are you not on a little. Are you not a... I know I've got it, yeah. but I do a Facebook Live, then I park it for the really? day. And I've got my bat phone, as I call it. My wife and my kids have got it. That's it. So if it rings. Maybe don't tell your wife you've got your bat phone. Yes. If it's football 2019, that's a bad that. thing. Right. Oh, is it? <laughs> All right. Well, but if it rings, I know it's worth picking up yeah. if you know what I mean so no I'm working on all that stuff all the time because I think it is a big distraction but I totally get it. it's an important part of it's culture. You know, everyday we living again and similarly to this movement abstinence isn't always the only answer yeah. moderation perhaps could be so I think if you learn how to moderate your alcohol in- intake and that may come from a period of abstinence you can also learn to moderate your technological um, usage as well. Oh, absolutely. It's, so it's the same. It's all behavioral change. So for me, then, that makes it a bit easier because I use it in the mornings. I've got it in my bag, like, to get here, Google Maps. Brilliant. That's a genius app. It saves me. I never would have found this place without it, let's no, be honest. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but then I can park it because I know I've got this other phone that I can sort of spend the rest of the day with because if anyone important needs to ring me, they can get hold of me. Yes. And then I haven't got that on me. So it's sort of, you know, again... Bending the rules a little bit. I like that. First you, way of doing you've it. got to think. Like. There's something I wanted to dig into, but I think you might have left it too late. But Go on. NLP. I saw on your oh, website yeah, that you're an NLP, NLP practitioner. Can I just ask a little bit about what NLP actually is? Yeah, so I got into that again for Anthony Robbins. If you read his book, he went to train with this guy called John Grinder, like at the very start of his whole career in NLP, which is neuro, neuro linguistic program. It's the worst name in the history of names because mm-hmm. it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. So what they did, it was two guys, uh, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, both sort of geniuses in their own field. Grinder was a linguistic uh, expert and um, they got really into trying to model human behavior. So they traced three of the best therapists in their fields and they just followed them, listened to what they said, wrote down the way that they spoke, their physiology. And actually, they took all that information away and built a way to model anyone, model success, basically. So their theory was you could take anyone that's successful and almost break them down, read everything they do, see what their mannerisms are, try and understand their thinking, and you can model their success. It evolved from there into just a way of understanding your brain. It's really practical. And I was lucky enough to train with John Grinder in Croydon of all places. So you think, here's Anthony Robbins with his multi-billion dollar industry. And I'm thinking, the guy that trained him, you know, there's no way you can ever train with that guy. It's going to cost like squillions to even get in the same room as him because Anthony Robbins would cost you a million quid to have a conversation with. So, you know, do your research. And I went, oh, he's going to be in, you know, LA and it's going to cost me an absolute arm and a leg. And it was like, oh, he's in Croydon. (laughs) And it's like two grand for a course. I was like, well, I'm doing that all day long. And it was brilliant. So I got to train with the the co-founder of NLP trained me in it, and the guy's brilliant. He, in his mid-80s, fit as a fiddle, black belt karate, rides stallions, rock climbs, speaks nine languages. Guy's a genius, and it's just a way of understanding your brain. Some of it is completely out there, wacky, off the shelf. And again, like all of this stuff, you've got to take the bits that resonate and ditch the rest. Yeah, yeah. Are there any bits you could soundbite? Just quickly. That, that are out there or that yeah, well, are... Well, that benefited you. Or oh, that brilliant. Yeah, so there's a thing called the meta model, which is all linguistics. You just break down your language patterns. For example, uh, our language is full of generalizations and deletions. And if we leave them in, we start to believe they're true. For example, we might say, everyone hates me. It's a sort of common thing we say all the time, right? But left unchallenged in our head, we start mm. to believe that everyone hates me. It's not true. So the challenge to that, if you were the coach, but you can do it yourself, is to say, well, everyone and then you have to think about it. Well, not everyone. 
I had an argument with Mark, but now it's down to one person. Instead of it being this blanket, pervasive thing that you're going to carry in your head that everyone hates you, it's now down to one person. It's Mark, which is a totally different approach. So it's a really clever way of breaking language down to get to the truth. It's what NLP, what a lot of the interrogation experts and whatnot would use to like really get into people's mm. language, to understand what's going on in people's mind. Because like our minds are cluttered enough and then we try and express it through language not very well yeah most of us and so it's no wonder anyone can understand what yeah. the hell anyone's talking about so yeah that sort of stuff is really powerful then some of the out there stuff is when at one point i had to talk to my knee effectively and my knee was going to move to give me the you know my subconscious was going to talk to me through moving my knee Jesus. type of stuff which each their own. I love it. I throw myself into all of this stuff. Yeah. I did it. Didn't work for me. My knee didn't move. For that, for me, that was just that's the stuff. It was that never going to move because there was some that's a block, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Like, so for me, I'm sure some people go, "Wow, sorry. that's amazing!" Right, my knees, <laughs> yes. my knees talking to me. This is cool. For me, that was that like, nah, yeah, yeah, the right old chat. <laughs> well Andy thank you so much yeah. man. this has been a brilliant conversation I've loved it just for anybody else out there so they can catch you uh, Andy Ramage uh, yeah. on Instagram Instagram Andy Ramage MV for motivation LinkedIn Andy Ramage and then on the socials of One You Know Beer which is One You Know Beer Instagram Facebook and then OneYouKnowBeer.com if you want to do a challenge and the book of course is the 28 day alcohol free challenge perfect co-written with Ruri Fairbeans Fairbeans brilliant thank you so much sir we've got to do 28 days now Absolutely. Challenge accepted. Cheers. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to follow us on our socials at Dog Days Pod. Leave us a comment, let us know what you think, and we'll see you next week.